0: You built a time machine out of a DeLorean. This is the stupid cancer show. Uh oh, sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mundus. <laughs>
2: Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late.
3: And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Annie Goodman and Matthew Zachary. Nothing is anything wrong
0: with
3: that. Because he has a lot of chit spots. Oh
0: <laughs> All <right.
2: laughs>
4: Monday, April 1st, April Fool's Day. Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary. I am a 17-year survivor of pediatric brain cancer.
5: And my name is Annie Goodman, journalist and young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your
4: hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Suck, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show... Is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Joining us
5: tonight is Richard Tate with Hope Lab and Shwen Gui of the blog Med 2.0 to discuss the evolutionary changes in digital health and the rise of the empowered patient movement. And the Survivor Spotlight is author and radio host Joni Aldrich.
0: The oh. Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, a nonprofit organization that empowers young adults affected by cancer online
4: at stupidcancer.org. And a stupid cancer welcome to any and all of our first time listeners here on Block Talk Radio Network as we welcome you live from the chemo deck, our fabulous studio in New York City. And with that it is a pleasant <laughs> April first.
5: Happy birthday. I
4: almost like to- it's like nice outside. Maybe that was the April Fool's.
5: Seriously. It's like the
4: first day of spring in like a year and a half. But somehow yeah. it rained and hailed in the middle of it. Yeah. Did it really? I missed that. It
5: but. did. I was at Yankee Stadium and I got rained on. And
0: now it's nice again. That's uh, pretty crazy.
5: Yeah. But you know what I hate about April Fool's Day? It's Everything? Like that. And <laughs> the people who like do stupid stuff like on social media. Like people who you know are like crazy, happily married, put single on Facebook. It's, it's like, like, ha ha, wah, wah, bro. Oh, is that,
4: that's that really was, horrible.
5: Good joke. Good joke. I didn't see that come in.
4: Well, Kenny and I were going to post that uh, we both re- resigned today. I didn't see cancer. You know, and then he reminded me it was April Fool's Day. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
5: Yeah.
4: Anyway, I also find that it is ironic that April Fool's Day kicks off National Young Adult Cancer Awareness Week. Yes. What, what a worse Fake holiday, yeah, to kick off something really important.
5: But you know what? It's just one day. You know, what? April Fool's Day is just one day, and we have the entire month.
4: And we're almost through it. But it's almost like you post it, and it'll be like, April Fool's. You get done of a week. <laughs> just anyway, regardless, National Young Adult Cancer Awareness Week. It is the 11th year. 11. Wow. Who, who knew that? Right. Uh, I will read verbatim from the website that uh, National Young Adult Cancer Awareness Week takes place annually, beginning on the first Monday in April for one week. Launched in 2003 by Vital Options International, our friend Selma Shevel, in recognition of its 20th anniversary because 20 years later, there was still far too much to be done for this unique group of cancer patients. And uh, today there are numerous young adult-focused organizations in this country. It is a mobilized and organized movement. And that Vital Options is a member of the critical mass. Young Adult Alliance, our friends over there with uh, Heidi Adams. Mm -hmm. And uh, they support the uh, activities of the entire young adult cancer movement. So that's, I, pretty cool. that's pretty cool. We have a week. We'll take a week. I yeah. Guess, I guess.
5: We could use a month.
4: It would be nice if we got a month, but then we just have to get a ribbon.
5: Yeah, then we have to get like a color.
4: Yeah. I don't and want to get l- a color. Yeah. Can we be like translucent? Is that a color?
5: We could be like
4: Like a sepia. Like shiny, like sparkly. <laughs> okay. Can we be an Instagram filter? I want to know that. X Pro? Yeah, let's be <laughs> X Pro. Or Nashville. <laughs> Can we be an Instagram filter? Yeah, Nashville. Yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted to also uh, bring up the fact that um, we have this small event coming up in three weeks. I can't wait. Which is pretty amazing. It's called the OMG Cancer Summit. If you haven't heard about it, you can check it out at OMG2013.org. We're almost at 400 attendees. That's amazing. Which is amazing. That's quite impressive.
0: I'm going to see about another 100 in the next couple of weeks. Well, yeah,
4: because you're getting in a vehicle and driving across the country. Well, I, I, meant, I meant, yes, that, but I also meant on the attendee list. I also left you a present on your desk this morning. My, Ew, my what son.
5: was
4: it? Oh, the radar detector. Yes. You you may borrow my radar detector so you don't get pulled over by Clebus the one-dog, you know, pony show uh, redneck. Correct. No, Clebus the slack-jawed yokel. That was it from oh. Simpson. There we go. Yeah.
5: I'm busy. Uh, I need to keep stocking up on spring-summer snazzy clothes for Vegas. Because I feel like there's nothing flashy enough for Vegas.
4: Well, this is where, like, girls can... Last year, Kenny sexified us when he weren't at a tux. Yeah. You I, look good, I, man. I intend on d- r- repeating, repeating that. that. Yes. That's good.
5: I have um, an animal print dress that I just ordered that I showed you, Matt. Oh, yeah? I showed you the picture.
4: Oh, you... Th- I thought you were just showing it to me as a goof. You're really going to wear that?
5: I really purchased it. That's I'm awesome. Bring she's it from easy. Long
4: Island. Of
0: course, she's going to wear it. I am. Print. You know
5: what? I, like, it's really funny. I was, I forgot where I was. I was at some store shopping and I was carrying a leopard print purse. <laughs> and the guy in the store oh, was boy. like, we have these really cute, like, leopard print um, shoes. And I was like, dude, I am basically snuggy. If I put <laughs> all my leopard prints together, I would look like, I would look ridiculous. I love animal print. I think it's a New York thing, Northeast thing. I just,
0: I love animal print. I, I like it too, but you just can't see it. You can't see animal print? No, that's no, not I'll, what he was I'll saying. I'll
4: figure that oh out. Oh, my God,
0: he Kenny. Under- I don't he need to know these things. He that a
1: bad
5: place.
4: Kenny always, always has that, like, the, the leap. It's like... It's line uh,
5: crossed. What's, what's
0: that line? It's like, uh, not more than you deserve, just more than you're used to? Yes, exactly.
4: Well said. Well said. Well,
5: I like to wear my animal print on the outside.
4: Well, anyway, going back to the Stupid Cancer Road Trip, <laughs> Yeah, please, which you can visit at stupidcancerroadtrip.org. dot org. Basically, Kenny will be uh, traversing the United States east to west. My goodness! And why don't you tell everybody where you're going to be? I will be in
0: starting in Boston, New York, DC, Durham, Atlanta, Memphis, Tulsa, Denver, Phoenix, San Diego, and finally Las Vegas, and points in between.
4: That's pretty uh, insane. It,
0: yeah, it's, it's going to be uh, 12 days of awesome. Yep. In uh, what's shaping up to be a really fun car, the and to be Chevy Rolls Royce. your friend? Vos. Yes, my good friend John Sabia, the responsible. I've been yep, I've been everywhere. Well, along came a semi with a high end canvas. And so I
5: sand and I said.
0: Yeah, it's probably like 45 seconds ago. I've
5: traveled every road in this here land, I've been everywhere.
4: Yep. That's your theme song now. <laughs> that is.
5: We should play it every time we talk about the road trip. <laughs>
4: but
5: we have to cue it up to the right place.
4: Yes. Oh, boy. Well, you'll be announcing the uh, social events during the news. I will. But that's pretty impressive. Yeah.
0: If you're bored right now, go over to stupidcancerroadtrip.org and check out the map. The yes. Map.
4: The map. I'm the, map. I'm the, map. <laughs> I'm the map. 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 By the way, Total Non-Sequitur, before we get to Johnny, there's a Dora the Explorer fake movie trailer out there. Oh, boy. It is absolutely hysterical. I've seen it. You have to watch it. Dora the Explorer fake movie trailer. I showed it to my wife because, you know, we have kids. They're going to be three next month, and they love Dora. And, like, it's just the parent's version of of total sarcastic ridiculous. It's great. Anyway, end of Non-Sequitur. All right, so the Count of the OMG... There was this thing in the New York Post last week about... About curing cancer? Yeah, there was this, like, they found this one thing that kills every type of cancer cell, but apparently it only works in mice.
5: Well, okay. My friend did text me about that, and I, I saw it too. And it's everything that comes out like that is positive. And the thing about us being in the cancer world and understanding and reading every inch of research that comes out, we take everything with a grain of salt. My fear is that people who aren't as versed in cancer news Look at it as the whole read the gospel. headline. Right. Read the headline. Holy shit! We just cured cancer. Like, right. Okay. Let's be real, people. It's a it's an absolute positive step in the right direction, but people are still going to die of cancer every single day, who shouldn't. Right. For the next however many years. Right. So we shouldn't. We should take it with you know. And okay, it's in mice. So, it still has to go to a human trial.
4: Is there something between mice and people, or is it just mice to people?
5: I think it's just mice to people. Really? Okay. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. What an
4: evolutionary leap there.
5: Yeah. But, I mean, I get it. These are like genetically engineered mice. It's all great news, but, you know, people need to understand that it will take a long time till people who really need this are going to have access to it, and still need to know that it works in humans. So, you know, I every inch of positive news i grasp to, because we never know when it's going to strike ourselves again or our friends or our family or just any human who goes through this experience you want them to have an easier time than you did right but you also have to you know understand okay well this is not exactly being like fda approved tomorrow and right going right to...
4: things take decades
5: yeah it does hopefully you know we'll speed things along but I just get nervous about people being, like, not reading the whole thing, reading the headline,
4: not truly comprehending. Or every fourth person on our wall that posts about hemp oil cures cancer. Right, yeah. And asparagus. Asparagus, right, exactly.
5: Or the low-fat diet. I'm like, oh, yeah, low-fat, yeah. Or the
4: Hollywood cookie diet always works for me.
5: (laughs) (laughs) There's a snooky cookie diet.
4: Oh, God.
0: I I don't want to have anything to do with Snooky's cookies.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Again, line crossed. This
4: is what Kenny does. This is why he's paid the big bucks. Yes. Yes. Anyway, let's get to our uh, our first guest here.
5: Joni Aldrich. Uh, since her husband and mother died from cancer, Joni Aldrich authors books and produces shows on surviving cancer, caregiving, and brain illness. Her credentials are enormous. She's written a ton of publications. She's the co-owner of a radio show, the Cancer Support Network. Uh, and she has 250 plus hours of radio shows. Board member of several organizations, like 10 websites. She has done it all. Joni, welcome. Well,
3: Hello. Hello, Joni. Me. Hey, Matthew.
4: How are you? Hi. It's uh, great to uh, do some reverse engineering and have you on my show for a change.
3: I know it. I'll, I I hate going first. <laughs> That's
4: okay. That's okay. It's all good.
3: It's it That's the tone, but um thank you for bringing that up before actually, I just heard somebody it's so funny talking about this new uh quote unquote cure, and there are some wonderful things going on in the field of cancer now, um but you know for some people, just doesn't come soon enough but uh there are some great things. personalized medicine is the big one, of course. And uh, we're all looking for, you know, because every cancer tumor, every cancer is
4: different. Understood, understood. And, and your story is is uh, quite wonderful in the sense that you were able to do so much good out of being dealt so much bad.
3: Well, you know, I meet people every day, Matthew and so do you, that have been able to do that. And I think the cancer experience is so different from a lot of experiences that we go through in our lifetime where it makes such an impact. I spent the last two weeks at two different cancer conferences and, you know, all the people that you meet that have had their life affected by cancer, it just makes a difference. But what I learned from the cancer experience with my husband was that you really do have to be alert, involved, and empowered during your cancer treatment, he was forty five when he died and I know that this is one of your mantras is more to the the younger um, cancer victims and uh, that's just too it's just too young and unfortunately, we did not find the right cancer treatment for him immediately and we trusted a state of the art one of the top 20 hospitals in the country, but unfortunately they just did not know how to deal with his cancer. And so when he passed away from metastatic brain cancer, there were so many things that I wanted to do to make sure that people knew, um, just like what you were talking about earlier, you really, really have to do your homework. And thank God for the Internet. Now, you know, I mean, it can be a blessing, it can be a boon too, but you can really learn a lot because it's so different, one treatment from another.
4: So tell us about your husband. Uh, What was life like prior to his diagnosis? What were his symptoms? And uh, what was that that sort of a pre-journey like for you?
3: It was, um, my husband was, uh, as a matter of fact, I had cancer insurance on me. I did not have cancer insurance on him because he was, Big, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he was like a, a linebacker. He was built like a linebacker, and all this time he had cancer in his bones. He had multiple myeloma that was eating his bones from the inside out. He was running three miles a day. I mean, he was probably in what was one of the healthiest times of his life, and we had no idea. He started having a little pain in his right hip when he was running. And we did not know at the time he actually had a fractured hip. He went and changed his running shoes. Uh, one of the things that I talk about all the time is that men are not always great about going to the doctor. Hello?
5: Right. <laughs> My doctor yeah. always says the first time a man goes to the doctor is when he has a heart attack. Oh, God. <laughs>
3: That's about it. But anyway, um, but we just would have never known. And then he started having some pain in his back. Um You know, just uh, really, really severe pain. And we went and he had a tumor in the spinal column. And that's kind of how it all metamorphed and started. But you would have never have known. And he was the highest stage for multiple myeloma, which is stage three.
5: And what is your WIN method? Tell us a little bit more about that. And also, you know, a little bit, actually tell us first about your role as a caregiver, What you did for your husband while he was going through his treatments and a diagnosis, as we all know, uh, going through cancer times is in some ways more difficult than the caregiver. So why don't you tell us a little bit first about how that was for you and what you did.
3: Well, you know, when your uh, loved one, any loved one is diagnosed, you think, okay, this is going to affect their life greatly. And I'm just being honest because, you know, really you do kind of think, well, Yes, this is going to affect our life, but it's going to be mostly because you have, Gordon and I both had huge careers that we were working on. And you think, well, it's going to affect his life more than mine. Well, it, it didn't work that way. Um, it, it really was more of a joint effort. And I mean, literally, once he was diagnosed, we had to jump right in. And we ended up um, getting his cancer treatment 800 miles away from our home, and he had three outpatient stem cell transplants. And so thank God we had a motor home. We had not waited to live um, until later on. And we, believe it or not, one of the things that we did, we didn't have children together. We had a motor home, and it was perfect because, you know, when you're getting cancer treatment that far away from home, a lot of people, it, it breaks them. I mean, they go financially destitute from this. Um, so, you know, going through the stem cell transplants, being away from your home for long periods of time, away from your support system, caregiving is just coming in its own because it really, really can be just as difficult in different ways for caregivers and a lot of caregivers actually pass away before their care receivers in older populations. It's very difficult.
4: So so talk us through the next part of your life's journey where you began um, to start creating content. You wrote books. You started speaking. You wrote seven books so far, actually, which is pretty impressive. I can't even get through my, my first one. And then you went into the world of, of uh, radio broadcasting.
3: Well, I came out of uh, the cancer experience, and to be honest, Matthew, just like a lot of people, I didn't even want to. He- I didn't want to go to a cancer center. I mean, the w- the worst part was the last five weeks of my husband's life when he had metastatic brain cancer, which is why I wrote three of my books, was for caregivers of brain cancer, brain illness patients to help them because I begged for this information. Nobody could give it to me. Nobody could tell me how to reconnect with my husband that went from somebody I knew and we had just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary at 8 o'clock in the morning to somebody who has minute-to-minute hallucinations at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. That's how quickly he changed. Um, So I knew that um, I wanted to do something because I knew that there were things that
2: Gordon and I had done
3: that were incorrect, even though because because of being cancer novices. And so several years passed. As I said, it was a very difficult journey, particularly with the last weeks of his life. And I I did get counseling. I do really really recommend counseling to people um, that are grieving for a loved one. And I did get counseling, and I, but I could not get this thought out of my mind that there was more. There was something else that I needed to do, and I had never even thought of writing a book in my life, and all of a sudden these chapters just, I I mean, people look at you funny when you say it, but they just started coming into my mind, and all of a sudden I was writing a book, and it was like I couldn't stop. It was, um, you know, I had a lot to say, and I had a lot of things. Uh, The when method, let's go back to that real quick. Uh, When, W is web and I did a year and a half worth of research for my first book. I researched every website and found the ones that I felt would be most beneficial, would have been, this is the book I wanted handed to me the day that Gordon was diagnosed, the saving of Gordon life when she against cancer. Um, So, you know, I did the research. The web is an incredible tool. It can be good. It can be bad, as I said earlier. I is interrogate. Interrogate your primary physician, your first oncologist, not necessarily your last oncologist, your second opinion. Interrogate from the medical community. Ask those hard questions. How many cases of this type of cancer have you treated in the last year? That it's not about nice. or It's, it's about your life. Don't hand it over without making sure that you have some kind of interrogation. And N is network. And when I tell people to network, network now. Don't wait until someone you love is diagnosed with cancer. Ask the questions of, of, the, of the 13.7 million survivors that are out there. Well, how'd you do it? Where, do, where were you treated? Um, network. Talk to people in your church. Talk to people in your community. And, you
2: know,
3: there are so many decisions with a cancer diagnosis.
4: So I'm curious as to, you know, we live in an age now of, of hyper-technology, and the concept of uh, cancer survivorship is like a real thing now. And programs like yours on the radio and ours on the radio, it, it, you you run a 24-7 cancer radio show i can't imagine that there isn't enough content to fill up a full day's work worth how do you go about sourcing information vetting guests do you find themes in what you're talking about like talk us about i want to want to hear more from you as a sort of a teachable moment for me because you've been doing this a long time uh what's it like to host a radio show and have such a incredible breadth of of listenership and topics
3: I just absolutely love it, and I learn every day. And here's what I do, is I live in cancer world. I really do, and I have to have something to offset that, so I do Zumba. (laughs) Long story. True story, but long story. Um, But basically, I am in a lot of different groups, and I look at every thread of information that I can get and make a lot of connections. I've interviewed... 65-plus doctors, 65-plus survivors, 65-plus caregivers, 50 charitable organizations. And we've covered like 25-plus different kinds of cancers, and there is never enough because, you know, now we're in an age of personalized medicine, which is really, really becoming a reality. Um, You know, I always find organizations, one is, Protein 53 I talked to the other day, that I'm really interested in an interview with them. Um, I'm doing week-long shows with different cancer centers. I have a week of shows from Duke Cancer Institute. They just built a new facility, and of course they have a tremendous tremendous brain center there, and I'm doing a week of shows with them. And, you know, I fill three days a week with cancer, one with caregiving, and the last one with uh, Ladies Who Inspire, which is a tremendous show that I can cover a lot of different topics. Um, but you know what? I thought that very same thing, Matthew, when I started this, and I can tell you that there's so much, so much to cover. And um, I, it's a constant learning thing, and we're in a great age. I like to look at this as a positive thing because I really believe. That, um, that we're in an age where we are finding some solutions. It's not going to be in time for a lot of people. But I have so many friends and family members and loved ones touched by cancer. So I'm going to keep out there fighting. And,
4: and it, it's incredible. And it's really inspiring and just incredibly um, impactful. You make a big difference. I guess we're going to wrap up in a few minutes, but I just want to hear, you know, what's, What's going on for you in the future? Like, what do you got? You already seem to have conquered the Internet. you conquered the publishing world. Um, Where's next for you?
3: Well, you know, we're doing some specialty things. And when I say we, um, we're doing some of it on the network. As a matter of fact, on April 27th, it's funny how um, you find – niches of things that you want to cover, I find these missions that I want to do. And and one April 27th, we're having a show about uh, pediatric malpractice, believe it or not. I've found a lot of people, a lot of stories, heartfelt stories recently about um, children whose parents, you know, probably allowed the medical group to do too much, weren't paying attention. One little girl died from a scratch on her leg that, you know, just a simple, cheap antibiotic could have fixed and she died, you know. So we're going to do a two-hour special showing on the network on April 27th from 10 to 12. Uh, but my personal mission right now is an comp- a organization called Courage to Dare, and that's org for anybody who wants to look at that. Uh, I'm going international. This is a Breast Cancer in Africa. Uh, we are writing a book of stories and working on finding funding for a docudrama uh, to highlight this very, very difficult situation where women are operated on by an orthopedic surgeon when they have a lump that is not necessarily cancer and they're just and just well you can well imagine. So um there's so much more to do in the world of cancer. Um you know we're making good progress. I honestly believe that all over the world I think that we're in an age finally where we can see some some blue light out there at the end of the tunnel, but um, there are other countries that are not.
4: Well, that's possibly a topic for eight or nine other radio <laughs> shows. Yeah,
3: I know, and I would love for you to cover it, because it really is uh, an amazing mission.
4: Well, I can't thank you enough for stopping by tonight and sharing your story. Um, you do great work, and uh, keep up the amazing stuff that you are doing.
3: I will. Look for it, and... Uh, Thank you for having me on your show, and you do the same.
4: Likewise. Thank Take you. care of yourself. Johnny Aldridge, everybody.
0: <laughs>
4: all right, let's uh, hop on the news here. Hello,
0: I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer.
4: Just the facts, ma'am.
0: All
4: right, Kenny, you're up. All right, Matt, head on over to
0: events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something will be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. Where do I begin? All right, Matt. Wednesday, April 3rd, we have a meetup in St. Louis, followed by the Stupid Cancer Road Trip. As I mentioned before, we're stopping through a lot of cities from east to west. Head on over to stupidcancerroadtrip.org to check them out. There's also a meetup in Los Angeles, California, happening Sunday, April 14th. And that is about it until the OMG Cancer Summit. Speaking of which, tell me about it, Matt. <laughs> we have less than three
4: weeks to go for the sixth annual I don't want to hear that. OMG Cancer Summit, the largest patient conference of its kind in the world for the young adult cancer movement. Three and a half days of awesome at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas. We're almost at 400 registrants. This is your last chance to get in on the fun and join 400 of your peers for an amazing experience that will change your life forever. Visit omg2013.org. All right, Matthew, that Stupid Cancer shirt you're wearing looks a little raggedy.
0: You should head on over to stupidcancerstore.org, pick up a new one, pick up some other stuff. Once again, stupidcancerstore.org. Nice segue. All right, thank you.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And finally, the Stupid Cancer Forums have almost 5,000 active members on a day-to-day basis. This is a premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.org and sign up with one click through Facebook, And that that is is your your Stupid Stupid Cancer
0: News.
4: All right, I'm really excited for these two guys. I'm really glad that you're really excited. I won't call them clowns. I'll just call them
5: guys. (laughs)
4: They're really nice. Oh, they're clowns, but they're nice guys. And uh, all right, so let's get them on board here. Hui is currently the chief digital officer at Chandler Chico. His expertise was forged on the client side of pharmaceutical marketing where he recently led digital strategy for social media for Vertex. He is a guru in the digital health space and one of my awesome friends who helps stupid cancer day in and day out because Kenny gilts him. Richard Tate is the vice president of communications and marketing for Hope Lab, and he is responsible for their media, public relations, and product marketing activities. He ensures that Hope Lab's work, mission, and values are effectively communicated to key audiences and doing all sorts of amazing things that we will be discussing in the next half hour. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Glee and Richard Tate. Gentlemen. Hey, Matt,
5: hello, great. hello.
4: Thank you. Hello. Matt, sometimes you say a lot of stuff
0: all at once and it sounds like a uh a, like almost like a a, a
4: mush, a hodgepodge
0: a, a of, of words,
4: words blended <laughs> together. I think it's called New York.
2: Yeah. It's my uh,
4: accent and my lack of saliva.
2: <laughs> How did you know I went to Clown College, by the way?
4: Oh, I met you.
2: <laughs> April Fools. Yeah. Uh-huh.
4: <laughs> No, it's funny. Running joke on the show is if people don't send me their bios, I make one up. Uh, and someone is always like a goat har- goat farmer from Norway with ch- who, you know, <laughs> makes cheese, and you know, with, with web toes or something like that.
1: Matt, how <laughs> often have you actually been right when you made it up?
4: Once. <laughs> <Because> we had <laughs> Dr. Was Evil as a guest. <laughs> That's fantastic. That wasn't funny, but I get it.
5: Yeah. <laughs>
4: Anyway, so, gentlemen, we are excited to have you on the show. You will be helming a workshop at the OMG Cancer Summit about e-patients and video gaming, which most people wouldn't normally put together. So I want to start with Schwinn because he has been at the forefront of what we call the e-patient movement, the digital health revolution. In layperson's terms, what does that actually mean?
1: Sure. The uh, e-patient movement is this movement of um, patients and caregivers and anybody that's really been uh, interested and looking for health information online um, and how this new world of digital and social and mobile is really empowering them to take charge of health, their own health, um, into their own hands. And um, what we're seeing now is that patients are no longer just waiting for doctors to tell them what to do or waiting for uh, information to come their way. They're going online, finding information just like yourselves. Um, They're finding um, communities like Stupid Cancer Um, to connect with other patients that are just like them or with other caregivers to share information to find information and to really empower each other Um, as well as um, patients that have really become really experts in their area of um, the disease or condition that they have so much so that they're digging into scientific research and medical information that most people would think only doctors and, and healthcare professionals would really understand Uh, But they're experts in it, and they're helping others find their way through it as well. So it's a big movement that's really been, uh, I think, uh, propelled by social media being one of the big platforms that's really done that. But also mobile technology is a big driving force as well.
4: Whatever you just said was correct. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm serious. Uh, I guess the the follow-up question is then, how does one become an empowered patient in that sense of the internet is full of so much crap that weeding through it and what what tools have people developed to sort of navigate them to to relevant information
1: sure i think you know uh... your your first uh... guest uh... joni was actually talking about this win solution and i think a lot of what she said was very much along the lines of how to find your way through that space and um... You know, uh, investigate everything. Uh, network. Make sure you connect with the right people. Uh, make sure you're looking for the right sources. Make sure that um, you're validating your sources, and it's not just a one-off. Um, go to the places where everybody else tells you to go to, and not just that one place that you found on the side of, you know, or a sidebar of Google or on page 63 of your Google search. Um, l- make sure that you're going to places which also may reference a source. Um, real scientific literature so that you um, are not just taking a one-off answer or finding information that could be a random um, piece of information that somebody found somewhere with no real source um, that's validated, but something where um, other patients are looking to as a reliable source and really asking people around you, people that have been through this before, whether it's the right type of information, whether it sounds accurate sounds correct, and I think, um, you know, it's just important to make sure that you look for reliable sources, including um, places which you may think are not reliable, such as pharmaceutical companies, um, which go through a very rigorous process in order to provide um, accurate and balanced health information.
4: And that's a good segue to Richard, because he also has a pharma background and then wound up working in the Mm -hmm. the, sort of the the, um, consumer healthcare space. And this will tie into your, your work with Hope Lab, but the, I think if this is still the case, patients and the public in general are usually leery of pharmaceutical websites, whether they're branded or not. Um, is that perception changing, or is that still a barrier, even if the information is, is of value?
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, As you said, I worked um, for many years in the pharma and biotech industries developing or working with teams developing cancer drugs and with marketing teams looking to put those uh, drugs into uh, uh, treatment protocols. And um, as Schwann said, there, the drug companies actually have to go through a pretty rigorous um, series of, uh, um, of hurdles to get their marketing messages out. And so the information tends to be, Um, uh, robust compared to some other resources that you might find. But I do think, as you mentioned, Matt, there is a tendency to sort of perceive that information as marketing, particularly as um, advertising of pharmaceutical products has evolved over the years. Um, But I do think part of what's changing is that uh, pharma companies and uh, folks like Hope Lab and and others uh, in in the digital health space are looking for ways to engage patients differently. So it's not just information that they're providing, but tools that actually support them in engaging differently in their healthcare, care, um, which is slightly less marketing and more um, patient support. So I think that there's an emerging uh, trend in uh, the digital space of creating tools to support patients, which is slightly different than trying to market to them, um, which I think is probably the mental model that a lot of folks have when they uh, think about pharma companies.
4: So what what are the strategies? I mean, obviously so much has changed in the last, you know, five or six years, specifically with the emergence of uh, how social media has become a real, like, day-to-day thing with, that we live with. Um, and, you know, the work of Hope Lab has been sort of a, a, the embodiment of that, that yeah. everything you brought to market is, is driven by what the crowd actually would pay attention to and use that provides some meaningful outcomes.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, as a nonprofit, we've been working in the cancer space, actually, since our inception. Uh, Broadly, our work is about designing technology to support uh, people's health and well-being, and that's fairly broad. But we're particularly interested in using technology that's fun and engaging and harnessing that to actually support people who oftentimes are facing really big challenges um, to their health. The founding idea for Hope Lab was to create a video game for young cancer patients to support them as they were going through treatment, and we're really excited to be um, uh, announcing the next version of that game um, originally released in 2006. The new version is going to be released actually debuted at OMG, uh, the Summit coming up, which we're Woo-hoo. super excited about. But these games are, are really sort of tapping into this trend in which you know mobile games and mobile technology um, lightweight casual games um, are things that Pretty much everyone uh, interacts with if you've got a mobile device or you know you spend any time with the computer and who doesn't these days, uh, you probably have played a game um, and using that game gaming uh, uh, technology to access support tools or create support tools for uh, young cancer patients is what our work is about and so that's one of the big trends that we've seen in terms of technology it's not just the sharing of information but it's the incredible level of engagement that people have with these uh... you know typically distractive uh... technologies elements of technologies and we're sort of really about engineering that in a way that's going to engage uh, people in very specific health behavior for cancer for us in particular it's about helping kids particularly adolescents and young adults, stick to their meds, which can be really challenging and can cause really uh, uh, severe uh, problems if, if you don't stick to your medication regimens. And so gaming is a really interesting way to keep people engaged and sort of focused on the goal in order to help them fight their cancer.
5: My question is for Schwen. Um When I was diagnosed, one of the first things my doctor told me, and I'm sure a lot of doctors tell other people this as well when they're told they have cancer is to stay off the internet. And my doctor specifically told me not to read anything because she was afraid that I would see, you know, I was 30 years old diagnosed with breast cancer and, you know, typically the younger you are when you're diagnosed with an older person's disease, you have a worse prognosis and things like that. So what, you know, that's kind of the flip side of the being the proactive e-patient is that it can scare you for worst case scenario so what do you think about that as well? Do you think it's good for people to see information like that, like to see it in black and white, like percentages and survival rates, or do you, you, know, do you think that's dangerous for people to see that, especially in the early stages when you're diagnosed when you know so little about your disease?
1: Sure. I mean, I, I think it's different for everyone, but I think it does it definitely helps a person to be prepared to know what to expect. I think, you know, like everything in life, the more prepared you are, the more um, you know what to expect later down the road, especially something um, as scary as getting diagnosed with um, cancer, um, the, the better it cha- your chance is of making the right choice when the time comes for you to make those choices. And the earlier you get to know the information that you need to make those choices, the more options you may be, may have in front of you. Um, I mean, a perfect example may be somebody like um, e-patient Dave Broncart who couldn't find the right answers until he um, went to uh, cancer community, ACOR, to find uh, information. And um, it was only there that he discovered some options that led to him actually, um, you know, um, um, getting the right experimental treatment, which has then extended his his prognosis. So um, in the end, I think, like I said, with any type of disease, cancer or otherwise, um, just knowing your options, knowing what to expect can actually be um, very beneficial for you uh, right up front. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it may um, put a lot of pressure because you may see some of the outcomes that, that you don't want to. Um, but but I think there's a lot of hope as well among the communities, among the patients, among the caregivers um, that are online discussing it. And everybody is trying to encourage each other to really um, do a better job about managing their own um, health.
4: So I want to turn it back to Richard for a second because <clears throat> I remember visiting your office in the Bay Area yeah. many, many years ago when you were just launching Remission
2: yeah. on, like,
4: was it even on DVD yet? I think it was just still on CD-ROM. Totally. Yeah. I and mean, this is
2: 2006. It was still like a packaged thing that, yeah. you know, you had to uh, put into your DVD drive and, and a load
4: I had to install, like, a fake PC in- imitator <laughs> application on my Mac to get it to work. But it, it did work. and It was great. Yeah. But it, the, the, the fundamental principle behind it was really not just specifically, you know, what do we do to, to get teens engaged, but the fact that the teenage cancer community hasn't really seen improved outcomes in a while. And a lot exactly. of that is attributable to the fact that, A, they're teenagers, and they're naturally yeah. defensive, and, you know, they're rebels yeah. and whatnot so getting them to remember to take their medicine or go back yep. to their doctor or deal with their pain or confront what they're dealing with you yeah. know you get you tend to mature very quickly with cancer but you're still a teenager yeah. and yeah. and what i find absolutely the most fascinating is that you were able to do something that actually changed their behavior yep outside of treating right. them senseless with a stick
2: Yeah, so the original game um, actually was uh, run through a randomized controlled study, much like a drug development study, and we had more than 300 young cancer patients uh, who played remission or played another video game as the control. And what we saw is that kids who played the game actually stuck to their meds more consistently, both their antibiotics and their chemotherapy. And we know that's critical in, um, in successful cancer treatment. And in the last few years, what we've been doing is really trying to understand deeply how we made that happen. I mean, that was a fantastic result. And honestly, as an organization, we were really interested in the potential for the technology to change behavior, but we didn't know if it would work. Happily, it did, and now we want to understand why. And we actually have gained some really incredible insights about how games – actually motivate healthy behavior. And there's some key things that probably make a lot of sense to anyone who's been through the cancer experience. Number one is giving people a sense of power and control, even when they're feeling like their world is falling apart. If you don't feel like you can actually do what it takes to fight your cancer, uh, it's really difficult to come through treatment successfully. So using games to boost what, in psychological terms, we call self-efficacy was a key component of the work that we did with remission. The other is just positive emotions, sort of shifting people's attitudes to the positive end of the spectrum as they're going through uh, you know, a really chaotic period of time in their life. And the third is um, really uh, giving... Uh, uh, people a different look at chemotherapy a lot of teenagers in particular are getting a lot of information thrown at them um, they don't really understand what it is and chemo is just this thing that's making you feel even worse than you already did and if you're uh, some you know leukemia patients you, know, you get sent home after some uh, intensive treatment you're told you're in remission but now they want you to take pills for two years and it just is a mental disconnect. So shifting an attitude around chemotherapy so that it's not something that's being done to you, but it's actually a weapon in your arsenal to fight cancer is a critical component of what we've done with remission. And the new games actually take advantage. You were talking about the old technology, which at this point is like dinosaur technology. The new games actually are much more accessible. You can play online um, through Mac, uh, PC. There are little flash games. You can play on iPad through um, a, a browser app. Um, and they do the same thing. They boost self-efficacy, they boost positive attitude and emotion, and they shift attitudes about chemotherapy all to help young patients really understand how to take on um, cancer and win.
4: And then that's, again, that's just incredibly extraordinary that you can do that. I, I just think of... I never. I credit my parents for never buying me a Nintendo (laughs) in the '80s. I I thank them to the day that I die. I thank them. They're never buying me a Nintendo, despite I got an Apple, I got a Macintosh instead of a a, Uh, a Nintendo. And to to this day, I've never like we bought a Wii for the office. It's like the first thing, first console I've ever used, and all I do is that's why you suck at it. I let Kenny Uh beat me in tennis every day. So. And that, that's, <laughs> Matt I actually got a every he, day? he got a brace I, for <laughs> his tennis elbow. But my but my, my whole point is that you know when I think of video games, I think of that South Park episode with World of Warcraft, where they're you know they're just like getting fat in their basements for like weeks at a time and lethargy <laughs> and it's a detriment to your health and all that stuff. And you sort of flip the coin on that. I want my uh, Schwen, Have you seen anything like this coming out of of your sector? Um, it, it, with any of the stuff. It's just so risky, but
1: wonderful. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting how the pharma world is really uh, jumping onto this whole idea of gamification, not just creating games that relate to health, but really um, talking about gamifying the experience of um, getting better, so to speak. Um, and and one, one person that I just saw recently at a conference I attended is Jane McGonigal, who's a game designer, PhD uh, yeah. researcher. I saw her TED um, talk. Great. Her TED talk yeah, was exactly. amazing. So exactly, she did that TED talk, and um, you know, she talks about um, how, as a game designer, she went through a period of life where um, she had a concussion and she really got depressed, and um, and then she had to gamify her world to get better. And what she did was create a game that uh, built up her physical resilience, her emotional resilience, her mental resilience, and so on. Um, and had different tasks that she needed to accomplish. And uh, the research she's been doing has shown that actually um, by, by doing these different tasks, you actually build up a resilience um, in these areas that helps you, um, in a sense, extend your life um, because you've actually become stronger through doing these tasks and accomplishing them. And so she actually created her own game called Super Better, which is based on how she gamified her world um, during that time of her, her life.
5: I kind of wish I had this while I was in chemo because I remember my I felt my brain rotting away mm. from chemo brain because i could I couldn't even read a book. I used to read all the time it meant I had no focus to read even a chapter of a book. I could barely get through a magazine but what what about expanding this to beyond children?
2: Mm. Well, you know the the truth is we we design them with kids in mind because as you know Matthew described we we saw a really uh, specific need there around treatment adherence in particular. But the games are available to everyone, and anecdotally we hear all the time that they're powerful, not just for people who are going through cancer treatment, regardless of their age. We we hear from you know patients as young as ten, eight. Um, and people who are, you know, in their 60s, 70s who are playing these games and really find them to be helpful. Um, but we also hear from family members, so, you know, um, you know, siblings um, who have a loved one who's going through cancer and they just don't really even know how to talk about what's happening or understand themselves what's happening. And the games give an insight in a pretty fun, engaging way, they kind of give you context and story for what's going on. I mean, the story is, you know, you're piloting, you know, little microscopic robots blasting away cancer. And so if you're going through treatment, that feels good. And if you're, you know, with someone who's going through treatment, it's sort of like this, huh, okay, this is why they're being asked to take all these pills. This is why they spend, you know, all that time in the infusion center. Um, this is what's happening, and this is how to fight cancer and and win. And uh, so to your, to your question, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, there's no age gate around any of this. Um, we uh, actually are just now rolling the games out. You can preview some of them at re-mission2.org, and I posted it to the forums as well. We're actually going to offer um, the Stupid Cancer community um, some advanced access, and I'll follow up with you, Matthew, on how we get that uh, password out to folks. Um, but it really is for anyone. And what we're seeing is that you know, playing these games and using technology to actually do more than just entertain is in many ways the next frontier. So it's hugely powerful to share information. But at Hope Lab, we see even potential, you know, sort of more broadly to kind of engage people in a different way.
4: You need to make like Angry Birds for chemo. Yeah, yeah. totally.
2: That's exactly that would be cool. the concept, yeah. I think, Matt well, is, I think,
4: I think Matt's onto something. Yeah.
2: I own the intellectual property Someone
4: for the record, so.
2: <laughs> Someone call Rovio. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. You know, they are coming up with a cartoon, too, so
1: yeah, they're making I lots just, of money and on that.
4: They made hand sanitizer. I posted it on my wall. It jumped <laughs> the shark. There's way too much Rovio going on and now. And
5: Kalen from World of Jenks wrote a comic book. Well, yeah,
1: terminally ill Yeah.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, I if, if I could just add on quickly to that, I mean, just thinking about um, who the average mobile gaming person is, it's you know, a 30- or 40-something-year-old female. So so it really games really do reach a wide audience. And also if you think about what Jay McGonigal is doing with her Super Better app, um, it's not just right. the gamer that's involved, it's them inviting their care team or, you know, people that are around them to be part of that game as well. And that that's could right. be anybody that, you know, is um of any age. Um so it could could be a range of your kids to your grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. I, admit, I I'm in that
5: demographic, and I play a lot of games <laughs> on my phone in an embarrassing way. I'm always afraid someone's going to, like, you know how you always want someone to, like, uh, delete your, brow- your browser history if you ever die? I want someone to delete my, like, iPhone history of all the bejeweled I play. <laughs> 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 all right,
4: I'll tell you what. You know what? Angry Birds came would work if the birds were instead, like, logoed health insurance companies that you hurled at the sun. <laughs> But then yeah, they wouldn't fund it, I suppose. Actually, that over, that, that's my question to both of you. Mm. What do you think really is the motive or that turned the tide in some of these pharma companies that are? I mean, because honestly, this is out of their comfort zone. This is this is risk. This is not a standard CME program or a standard you know lunch and learn or a direct consumer non branded website. This is really different stuff. And are we at a point where they're just used to it now, or are they still are averse and need to be explained? that this is the next generation of reaching patients and making a difference? That's for either of you to answer at the same time.
2: Yeah. Well, I can, you know, I mean, I can share uh, my experience, you know, at Hope Lab. We're we're actually developing and collaborating with other folks who are developing technology in this particular way. So there's sort of a selection bias around the people that we tend to interact with because they believe that there's potential here and they really want to tap into that. I think one of the gaps has been in in the space when, when we talk about, using technology to support health behavior or engagement in in treatment, Um, just a lack of data around whether or not these things actually work to do what what we hope they will. And I think that that's been a differentiator for us at Hope Lab. But as a nonprofit, that's part of how we see our role. We're sort of filling gaps where industry, you know, either uh, has feared to tread or has not yet sort of seen the opportunity. And so, Preventing, presenting this data, I think, is um, part of what we hope will catalyze development um, around technology that really supports patients and um, and their caregivers and and you know their, their families through some of these health experiences. But we do we actually get a fair number of inquiries from um, pharma companies from um, you know, insurers from uh, people in the healthcare industry who are really curious and looking for a way to explore this, um, and I think struggling a little bit to understand whether or not there are developers out there that they can collaborate with, that they have to, bring you know, um, bring capabilities in-house to get this done, but I anecdotally have just seen in these interactions with folks who approach us uh, a real willingness and an interest to begin to explore how technology can engage uh, engage patients differently. And I don't know, Shwen, you may have a, 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 a different perspective as well in some of your work.
1: No, I think uh, i think I, I, I definitely along the same lines of what you're seeing. Uh, over the last few years, I think the question hasn't been so much around why do we need to do it, but rather how. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's changed because I think there's a lot more recognition that um, engaging with the um, audience or the customer um, is important part of uh, keeping keeping that um, relationship going with with their customers. So it's it's something that they're all trying to do. They're just trying to figure out how to do it within the highly regulated environment. And more and more companies are starting to engage in ways um, you know use uh, in ways that we know as our standard social media platforms, um, but within their own regulated environment. And um, so they're starting that way. They're also trying to create... Um, you know more proprietary platforms where they can engage in a more uh, uh, closed environment, so that it's not as open and it's more restricted, and they can control the environment. But uh, all in all, I think overall the environment has changed over the last even just one or two years, so much so that there's a lot more interest in finding a way to connect with the patients, whether it's through gamification, so that they can uh, try and continue to change behavior and keep you know a patient adherent on a drug because. Um, if a patient obviously doesn't adhere to their drug regimen, then the efficacy of, of the drug treatment isn't as good. So you don't you don't want that to happen either. Um, at the same time, they're also trying things like just the standard social media platforms, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or so on, um, as well as other new things that are coming out. So they're innovating a lot and trying a lot. But it's, again, very difficult in this regulated environment.
5: I have a question, Uh For Schwen. One of my questions, and I'm really interested in this e patient thing because one thing I found out is sometimes doctors tend to be a little standoffish. I mean, we all know that oncologists and doctors who specialize in, in cancer treatment are extremely brilliant and very, very smart. And sometimes they tend to be almost threatened if you question. And this is not all doctors, a lot of doctors want you to be informed, but some doctors get almost defensive and threatened if you question. The treatment that they're suggesting, a lot of doctors get insulted. If you want to get a second opinion, um, some are reluctant to release your medical records. So, what also do you feel is the feedback from doctors, from people becoming more and more informed and, you know, questioning their treatment and asking for second opinions, and especially with how easy everything is to find on the internet? You know, what has been responses from doctors?
1: I think, you know, there there's a, a different types of doctors and there's some that believe in this whole idea of participatory medicine where they believe that um they can work together with a patient in order to drive the best outcomes for the patient. So they're very encouraged when a patient's actually interested in learning about their health. Um, the worst thing that can happen is a patient is not interested about about in their health at all and just wants to listen to what the doctor tells them and just follows, you know, one, two, three and that's it. Um, But then there are doctors that are feeling a little threatened because there's so much information out there, a lot of which may not be reliable, may not be um, research-based and evidence-based, which doctors rely on to make their decisions. So. Um, between the experience that they have and their research and evidence that they read about and learn about during their training as well as their ongoing medical education, they strongly believe those are the drivers for um, the decisions they make. So for you to come in and dig something from the Internet and just say, hey, you know what, I read that orange juice cures this. um uh-huh. may not, mm. <laughs> you not know, it it, it, It's something that sits well with them. Yeah, so, but at the same time, I think there are a set of doctors that may say, okay, show me the evidence, and they walk through that with you saying, well, you need to look for a reliable source or a validated um, um, reference in order to decide that that actually works. Um, So so I think it really depends on the doctor, but you're right, it it can be threatening to a doctor, uh, but rightly so because of the way their training has been all along.
4: So one, one, we have a few minutes left. Uh, we, we can go long here because this is really interesting stuff to discuss. Um, what do you see and beyond, obviously, Richard, the word of mouth? Uh, <laughs> what, what do you, what the adoption rate for this game, and is it really like virally driven? Or I mean, because you know everyone yells yes. at nonprofits for taking out advertising, but how do you, how do you get the word out there?
2: Well, that's why we're on the show tonight. Actually, it's interesting. This uh, Oh, the, no
4: one's really shift. listening. It's all a shame.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's just us chit-chatting. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, but you guys are really interested and engaged in this stuff, and I know that you've got, um, you know, uh, networks and people that you're talking to. And we've, at Hope Lab, admired for a long time what Stupid Cancer has done in creating a community of advocates who really know their stuff and they're interested in providing um, information, um, actionable information to um, the folks in the community. Um, you know, when we launched our Mission, the first game, Matt, I mean, that was a physical product that had to be somehow distributed. And that's a real challenge. And um, these games are online. They're, you know, playable anywhere as long as you've got, you know, a web browser. And so there's viral potential for these games, um, certainly. So it's a bit of an experiment. You know, we're a lab, so this is an experiment for us to see how we can get these games out and, uh, you know, in front of kids who can uh, really benefit from them, kids and others as well. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting, we've done most of our work, as you might imagine, directly with hospitals and clinics where um, adolescents and young adults are being treated because that's the point at which we have seen from the research that these games can be most effective. And so one of the challenges there has really been, um, as we were kind of just talking about, you know, this conversation around doctors and how in that sort of clinical care setting, technology is showing up. And, uh, you know, there's so many different pressures and factors that actually limit, I think, from my point of view, the way that technology can show up in hospitals. So if you look at what they're actually um, making accessible, there are these dinosaur dusty, you know, you know, desktop towers in the corner of some like, you know, patient waiting room. Um, But fast forward, you know, people are showing up with tablets and, you know, uh, phones that are enabled. And so uh, I'm really curious to see how new products, mobile apps, um, things like, you know, the Remission 2 games might show up and might actually be liberated, if you will, from that clinical care setting and people can access these things more freely just as they do, you know, uh, uh, access information through Google searches. So. We're, you know, we're really curious to see how this is going to work. And one of the reasons that we're, you know, working with you guys is because we're really interested in people sharing out and, and seeing how people engage with these, with these new tools that are being created.
4: All right. Last question for Schwinn. Um, you just came back from South by Southwest. What's the latest and greatest in, in all the stuff I should care about?
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing, um, and it's probably been said here more than enough times, health has jumped the shark. Um, mm. in, in, in terms of um, it 's gone beyond just the healthcare track you know before for the last three years, health has always been kept to the healthcare track this year. Um, I saw um, health everywhere in every track and it 's mainly fueled by things like wearable technologies and quantified self you know those fitbits and um, Nike fuel bands and so on. Um, those types of devices are appearing everywhere in every track and not just in the healthcare track and um in the previous years when i asked people you know in the room how many of you are in the healthcare industry i usually got like a third or a quarter of the room saying they were this year i probably saw 70 to 80% of the room putting up their hand saying that they were working in the healthcare industry so it it's really um the, the consumerization of healthcare is here
4: is that it i'm i'm not impressed
1: no <laughs> <laughs> Stupid cancer was the biggest thing there. Okay, that's all I care about. <laughs> yep. so I want a big
4: poster of Kenny that people throw darts at. Go Kane. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, uh, and Richard, the, the website that people can go to to learn more about the game?
2: Yeah, it's re-mission2.org. Remission2.org. Awesome. And I uh, posted the forums and you know, um, we'll be communicating out uh, a few different ways. So we'll make sure that uh, the Stupid Cancer community knows all about the games. I'm looking forward to your feedback. We'd love to hear what you guys think.
4: And once again, Richard and Chuen will be speaking at the OMG Cancer Summit in three weeks on this very topic to a very targeted audience of health consumers. Go figure, right? Because we're all health consumers now, apparently. Eighty percent of the yeah. people raise their hands. So, <laughs> just blanket the country with health consumers. Good. That's it ups right. our numbers, I guess. We can inflate our numbers now. Anyway, with that said, and the crickets. Thank you, <laughs> gentlemen, for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> and I will see you guys in uh, in three weeks in Vegas. Yeah,
2: in, in Vegas. Vegas. See you in Vegas. See you in Thanks. Vegas, guys.
4: All right. What happens Tate there? And Schwen Green. Right. Exactly. What happens in Vegas?
2: Thank you. <laughs>
4: Have you um, seen the Remission game? I saw it on the website. The very first version that I saw years ago, I mean, I'm going to do a horrible disservice by equating it to Doom, but it was a Doom like player game mm-hmm. where you're you're basically killing cancer cells. It was very innovative at the time and set a, apparently set a whole new precedent for
5: Yeah, it's the amazing. whole industry. The fact it's that wonderful. helping and making kids take their medication is amazing. No, it it go figure.
4: Like yeah. how do you change behavior, right? Yeah. Incentive. Amazing. Right, Kenny? Like right. You, you dangle the beer in front of you. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well I guess that's tonight's show. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking us tickets to cancer. Now it is time for our closing sequence.
3: Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the,
4: uh, internets.
0: You ever seen a grown man naked?
4: And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Kenny, dropped the ball. It's okay.
0: Okay, folks, that's our show, number 260. We hope you had as much fun as we did, poking a stick
4: at stupid cancer. Kenny's drunk.
0: I'm <laughs> drunk. I'd like um, to
4: thank our guests, Joni Aldrich, Gwen Green, Richard Tate.
5: And on next week's show, join us next Monday as we shine a global spotlight in our partners at the Cancer Treatment Centers of America, a national network of cancer centers helping patients fight cancer using advanced technology and a personalized approach. We will be speaking with Carolyn Lammersfeld and Rod Raymond, as well as survivor couples Gina and William Churchill.
4: Awesome stuff. If you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at iTunes.StupidCancer.org or check out all of the archives at StupidCancerShow.org. Remember, folks it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the Chemo Deck, on behalf of Kenny Kane, Andy Goodman, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week. We'll see you back here live next Monday at 8 p.m. And everybody,
0: good
3: night.